The Spanish expedition, helmed by its Portuguese captain Ferdinand Magellan, set off on September 20th, 1519, on a voyage that would circumnavigate the globe for the very first time. They departed from southern Spain with 270 men. Most would never set foot upon European soil again. Historian Antonio Ferris points out that the country that they were leaving was a political superpower helmed by Charles V, the head of the pan-European Habsburg dynasty that sat atop the throne of the Holy Roman Empire. Magellan's voyage wasn't the only prominent exploration occurring that year, as Hernán Cortés would initiate his own voyage, albeit one that was only loosely sanctioned by Spain. That expedition saw the Spanish conquistadors overthrow the ruling Aztec Empire. Those that departed in 1519 couldn't have known it at the time, but change was coming to Europe. Foremost among them was the fact that the Ottoman Empire was rising, hampering the Habsburgs' attempts to extend their power and influence beyond Europe. Two years earlier, Martin Luther had initiated a schism with the Catholic Church by posting his 95 theses on the door of his church in Wittenberg. The continental religious wars that followed in the wake were beginning to reform the borders of Europe. Buffered by the tenacious Spanish Inquisition, the Protestant movement never posed an obstacle to Charles, nor subsequently to the shores of Portugal, which was in turn geographically protected via the isolation imposed by its larger Iberian neighbor. Thus, Spain and Portugal were the only two nations involved in the sustained process of overseas expansion. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the adventures of the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. Episode number three, The Voyage of a Lifetime. We know so much about Magellan's voyage across the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans because multiple members of the crew documented the events in real time. Italian scholar Antonio Pigafetta joined the expedition for that expressed purpose and was thus ordered by Magellan to keep a record of the voyage. It was a personal, free-flowing account of the journal, much more in the style of Marco Polo's The Travels than the official logbook kept by Francisco Alba, the Trinidad's pilot. Additionally, a number of the survivors of the expedition sat down to document the extraordinary events with Spanish historians, creating overlapping accounts that allow for robust historical investigation. The one thing that is lacking in the accounts gathered are the indigenous voices that interacted with the cast of our story. They chose the San Lucar de Barmeda as the port of final departure. It was the same port that served as the starting point for Columbus's third voyage to the New World. Historian Lawrence Burgreen, our main source for this series, speculates that Magellan might have chosen the same port to announce that he planned to build on and outdo Columbus's accomplishments. The crew of the Armada of the Moluccas wouldn't have written that they were entering the Atlantic Ocean. Rather, they would have told you that they had begun their journey along the ocean sea, 
which was believed to cross the entirety of the globe. Knowing that every voyage carried great risk, they eased the rope of the foresail while loudly proclaiming in unison the name of the Holy Trinity, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, three persons in one single true God, that they may be with us and give us good and safe voyage, and carry us and return us safely to our homes. Although the sailors knew that they had signed up for a two-year voyage, they didn't yet comprehend the scope of their mission. Part of this was normal practice for sea captains. Burgreen reminds us that going to sea was the most adventurous thing one could do, the Renaissance equivalent of becoming an astronaut. But the likelihood of death and disaster was far greater. These days, there are no undiscovered places on Earth. In the age of the global positioning system, no one needs to get lost. But in the age of discovery, more than half the world was unexplored, unmapped, and misunderstood by Europeans. Mariners feared that they could literally sail over the edge of the world. They believed the sea monsters lurked in the briny depths, waiting to devour them. And when they crossed the equator, the ocean would boil and scald them to death. Another reason for Magellan to keep the details close to his chest was the fear that no one would accompany him if they knew the true destination. A lot of the stories the sailors told each other while on board can be traced back to Pliny the Elder, who died in the eruption of Mount Vesuvius more than 1400 years before Magellan's crew departed Spain. Pliny wrote with what he claimed was first-hand knowledge regarding tribes of three-eyed individuals, wild griffins which hoard gold, as well as forest-dwelling humans who run at twice the speed due to the fact that their feet are on backwards. A large number of these out-of-this-world creature catalogs were said to reside in India, the name most associated with the spice trade. Pliny even stirred up prejudice towards transgendered individuals, telling tall tales about women turning into men on their wedding day. These larger-than-life stories were somehow still believed in this age, despite the fact that Pliny's Eastern European stories regarding individuals with two sets of eyes and backward-facing heads had already been disproven. Ferdinand Magellan's autocratic style, which resulted in nearly every secret remaining closely guarded, resulted in Pigafetta noting that the masters and captains of the other ships of his company loved him not. I do not know the reason unless it be that he, the captain general, was Portuguese, and that they were Spaniards and Castilians, which peoples have long borne ill will and malevolence towards one another. Asserting his authority from the beginning, Magellan's ship went before the others, forcing them to follow him through the night by way of a burning lantern. He set a traditional system of watches, looking out for ocean hazards, Portuguese threats, and perhaps unrest amongst his own crew. Burgreen informs us that his strict procedures demanded discipline from an inexperienced crew lacking respect for the captain general. The most innocuous aspect of his standing orders, the requirement that all ships report to the Trinidad, the flagship at dusk, rankled the most because it demonstrated that Magellan and no one else served as the leader of the Armada de Mulaca. 
Their first stop were the Canary Islands, which are located off the western coast of Africa. Formed millions of years ago through oceanic volcanic eruptions, the island chain came into Spain's possession as a result of a brutal military takeover against an incredible aboriginal resistance that held out for more than 90 years. In addition to restocking their supplies, Magellan became aware of a rumor that his old boss, Portugal's King Manuel, had dispatched two fleets of caravals whose sole purpose was to find and arrest him. This act further connected Ferdinand to Columbus, the man whom he hoped to surpass in fame. The similarity stemmed from the fact that Manuel's father had attempted to intercept Columbus, another foreign explorer sailing beneath Spain's flag across the uncharted Atlantic. Magellan was immediately alerted to the threat via secret communique from his politically connected father-in-law, who claimed that the Castilian captains in the Armada had planned to mutiny at the first opportunity presented. The ringleader was identified as none other than Juan de Cartagena, the highest-ranking Spanish operative in the fleet, one who oversaw all commercial decisions and thus at times outranked even Magellan. As he had with every other piece of information about the mission, the captain kept both facts private, which likely didn't make him any friends among the crew, as he forced them to sail both day and night, as well as taking evasive action in order to put them on an unpredictable southwest course. The path he chose would inevitably add time to the crossing. When Cartagena demanded answers, Magellan merely replied, follow and do not ask questions. For the next 15 days, they followed the coast of Africa. Although the path was well-traveled by Portuguese vessels, the Spaniards had no reliable nautical charts in their possession. Because they were within their rivals' territory, the crew were not allowed to light cooking fires. Harsh winds forced them to lower their sails. Pigafetta claims that they sailed for 60 days of rain to the equatorial line, buffeted by constant squalls preventing any advancement. The region's sharks were among those who sensed the danger to the fleet, circling the ships constantly. Pigafetta wrote that they had terrible teeth and eat men when they find them alive or dead in the sea, but they are not good to eat when large, and even the small ones are not much good. Bergreen teaches that after weeks of constant life-threatening storms, several hissing incandescent globes mysteriously appeared on the yardarms of Magellan's ship, the Trinidad. St. Elmo's fire. Here was a natural phenomenon to rival any fanciful supernatural apparition cataloged by Pliny or Sir John Mandeville. St. Elmo's fire is a dramatic electrical discharge that looks like a stream of fire as it trails from the mast of a ship. It can even play about someone's head, causing an eerie tingling sensation. Pigafetta writes that the fire assumed the form of a lighted torch at the height of the main top, and remained there more than two hours and a half to the comfort of us all. For we were in tears, expecting only the hour of death. And when this holy light was about to leave us, it was so bright to the eyes of all that we were for more than a quarter of an hour as blind as men calling for mercy. For without any doubt, no man thought he would escape from that storm. Admirals, the generals of the sea, 
share a lot of characteristics with their land cousins. Just as soldiers flock to the banners of victorious generals, admirals receive a boost in confidence for their ability to direct their ships through near-death situations. The appearance of St. Elmo's fire and the subsequent shift in the weather managed to delay the inevitable mutiny. It wasn't enough, however, to make Magellan popular with his men. Columbus could have traveled to the New World and back over the course of the 60 days that they had spent staying in one place, being absolutely battered by storms. Way behind schedule, Magellan reduced rations across the board, limiting hardtack to a pound and a half per day for each sailor. As was his manner, he refused to explain why he was taking such drastic actions. Cartengia, the man that had been identified to Magellan as the likely ringleader, began to flex his own muscles in the face of leadership, which seemed intent on tying its own noose. It began as these things oftentimes do, with a simple microaggression. Rather than appearing himself on the exhausting nightly appearance at the Trinidad at dusk, Cartengia sent his quartermaster. One slight often precedes another, and Magellan became incensed to hear the man say merely Captain, rather than the official honorific of Captain General. It wasn't an accidental slight, as the Spaniard replied to his co-Captain General that, I sent my best man to salute you, and if that isn't satisfactory, another time I'll do so through one of my pages. A crime, however, got in the way of the tense situation, with the master of the Victoria having been caught in the act of sodomizing a cabin boy. Beneath Spanish law, the prescribed penalty was death. Bergreen informs us that in practice, homosexuality among sailors confined to ships over long periods of time was inevitable. There are few accounts of captains attempting to punish sailors for this behavior. Instead, they simply looked the other way. Magellan took a harsher course of action. He held a court-martial of the sailor, serving as both judge and jury. The outcome of the proceeding was swift, and the man was condemned to death by strangulation. The boy also died soon after, but the record is unsure of whether he threw himself overboard because of the ridicule, or if he himself was forcibly tossed off the ship for his role in the supposed crime. Events such as this have a way of getting fence-sitters to choose a side, and Magellan soon became aware that all of the captains, except João Serrero, were determined to mutiny. Alerted to the extent of the danger, Ferdinand wasted no time, launching a preemptive attack upon Cartengia during a joyful dinner meeting. By pushing him into a chair and shouting rebel before claiming that he was a prisoner, Confidently, the Portuguese captain-general performed the theatrical act in front of the other rebellious captains. And as fate would have it, when Cartengia urged his co-conspirators to stab Magellan with their daggers, they hesitated. He could have sentenced his co-captain to death just as he had the sodomizer who had run afoul of Spanish law. After all, Cartengia had outed himself by urging his allies to strike. Magellan, however, had other plans. 
first choosing to embarrass the man by placing him visibly in the above-deck stockades that were traditionally used for common sailors who had committed minor offenses. Cartentia's friends begged for his removal, which Magellan allowed as a show of mercy, placing the rebel leader within the confines of the Mendoza, a ship commanded by Luis de Mendoza. Bergreen writes how naive Magellan's actions were by stating, Stripped of his command and having learned nothing from the experience of his failed mutiny, Cartenja grew intensely resentful of his inexperienced replacement. From that moment, he burned with desire for revenge against Magellan, no matter what the cost to the expedition, and due to family connections, Cartenja had power to make great trouble. Of all the perils that Magellan faced on the journey's first leg, the greatest was Cartenja's treachery. In what was surely seen as an act buoying the fortunes of the unpopular Ferdinand Magellan, the wind finally picked up, allowing them to abandon the African continent in order to finally begin their long-awaited crossing of the Atlantic. Unfortunately, none of the pilots knew of the South Equatorial Current, which carried the entire fleet west of its intended heading. Despite this, the Armada of the Moluccas reached the mouth of the Rio de Janeiro on December 13, 1519. They had arrived within the territorial waters of Portuguese-held Brazil. They had found the Americas. Now they needed a path through it. The land had been settled years earlier. In fact, one of Magellan's pilots had already set foot on the harbor of the River of January, as it was known at the time. The name Brazil became attached to the land in 1511, eight years before the arrival of Magellan. It was a derivative of the word Brazilwood, which was the only initial product of value found within the vast unexplored Portuguese territory. The unique wood was excellent at producing bright red dyes. Harvesting these trees soon became the work of slaves imported via the slave coasts of West Africa. Thus, the Portuguese crown twice profited off of the land, earning money from the export of slaves and then through their labor. The original European settlers of the land, many of whom arrived hoping to find gold or at least silver, toiled uselessly. As historian Cameron Dodge points out, the Brazil wood was identified to them as His Majesty's own drug, and as such is protected so that no one may deal in it except the king himself or those who receive his license under contract. The king's monopoly left the intrepid settlers largely destitute. Pigafetta, the official biographer for the campaign, utilized his native Italian word for the tree, referring to the land as Verzin. Despite the emerging importance of the wood, Portugal had yet to establish any permanent settlements in the land of the Amazon. That lack of presence meant two things. First, the French illegally harvested Brazil wood right under the Portuguese noses, and secondly, a Spanish fleet of five ships arrived at port without any hindrance. The indigenous peoples that greeted them had been suffering the consequences of a lengthy two-month drought. Fortunately, as Pigafetta notes, the day we arrived the rain began, 
so that the people of the place said that we came from heaven and brought the rain with us. The indigenous peoples of Brazil were far from what we would deem as advanced at this moment in history. When Magellan's fleet anchored and tendered ashore, the natives were under the impression that the smaller boats were the children of the main vessels. Burgreen writes that as Magellan's ships came to rest, a throng of women, all of them naked and eager for contact with the travelers, swam out to greet them. Deprived of the company of women for months, the sailors believed they had found an earthly paradise. Any fear they might have had of Indian cannibals melted in the flame of carnal pleasure. Discovering that the women of Verzin were for sale, the sailors gladly exchanged their cheap German knives for sexual favors. As was typical for the age, most sailors on this expedition were in their teens or early 20s. The job was so dangerous that anyone in their 30s was considered a full veteran. The temptations that they found in the New World were too much for many of these young men, including Duarte Barbosa, one of the chief allies of Ferdinand, who attempted to defect into the waiting arms of the indigenous peoples. As such, his shore leave request was forcibly denied, leaving him aboard the ship chained to the deck, forced to watch the rest of the men pair up from afar. The crew spent their Christmas at the port in Rio, performing two masses for the locals. While it is unlikely that the indigenous people understood much, if anything, of the proceedings, the locals were identified as future converts due to their visible excitement during the singing portions of the ceremony. Jao Carvalho, the pilot who had previously been to Brazil, reunited with his former wife and met his son for the first time enlisting the young boy as a servant among the crew. There was no such luck for his wife, however, as the captain general refused to allow any women on board. Despite the strict order, several were found stowed away during a detailed search immediately before the fleet departed on January 8, 1520. They traveled further south, hoping to find a strait that would take them through the landmass that would become known as the South American continent. Relatively quickly, Magellan's maps became speculatory, as no European had sailed this far south in the New World. He was guided, therefore, by instinct and his assumptions. Columbus had written that he was convinced that a strait must exist, despite having spent his entire New World experience in the Caribbean. His belief had been buoyed by a vision that he proclaimed to have had during his fourth and final voyage across the Atlantic. For months, the Armada hugged the coastline of Brazil before then straddling the shoreline of what is now known as Argentina. The daunting trek wouldn't have been fun in games for the crew. Storms battered them, but it was imagined fears that likely consumed their thoughts while they slept. Spain and Portugal had both had entire crews lost to hostile native forces whenever they had strayed from the mouth of Rio. Rumors of cannibalism would have been known to every member of the crew. Interactions between the residents of the Old World and its New World visitors were quite odd, due to the fact that both sides lacked any ability to communicate. 
In one instance, fully armed Spaniards gave chase to natives who were watching the Armada's travels. In another instance, a man who appeared as though he were a chief sailed out alone to the fleet. Magellan gifted him a shirt and a jersey before attempting to show off metal to the man in hopes of entering into trade for much-needed resupply. Burgreen writes of this particular instance that, after the Indian left Trinidad, he never returned. The fleeting encounter with the indifferent tribal leader baffled Magellan and his officers. If they were received well, the sailors were ready for orgies, and the priests for mass conversions. If they were attacked, they were ready for battle, but they were not prepared to be ignored. Their complete lack of knowledge meant that every stream had to be painstakingly explored and mapped out in hopes that it was the desired strait that would deliver them across the landmass. During one such mapping expedition, Magellan was forced to temporarily abandon the flagship in order to personally voyage inward aboard the Santiago, the smallest of the five ships. This act suggests that Ferdinand felt assured of his position among the men, whom earlier in the year had displayed signs of mutiny. Keep in mind that the leader of that attempted mutiny and the expedition's co-captain remain locked within one of the vessel's stockyards. These shallow rivers risked running the boat aground, but similar dangers existed on the high seas, as the Victoria struck bottom several times during their trip. At this moment, a rising tide saved the ship, with help of a few adventurous sailors who were forced to swim beneath the vessel to personally remove seaweed from the ship's rudder. Over the next nine months, the crew of the Armada made many discoveries, but none involved the desired shortcut to the Spice Islands. They spotted penguins, identifying them first as ducks and then later settling on the fact that they were definitely geese. The inlet where they were found remains known to this day as the Baraja de los Petos, or Duck Bay. They also encountered sea lions, which they incorrectly identified as sea wolves. Both creatures were easily hunted and provided a source of much-needed food to the crew. Although the flightless birds are an endangered species and protected by the Antarctic Treaty, it remains legal to eat them today in Chile. Although I would never partake in a penguin pate, sources on the internet claim that it tastes like a piece of beef. Weather regularly forced the men to hasten ashore in order to take cover and await rescue. Eventually, the captain was forced to halt the search for the strait due to the adverse winter weather. On March 31st, the crew arrived at what would become Port St. Julian, a narrow inlet that allowed them to anchor close to shore. It was believed that they were in Portuguese waters, meaning that Spain may have financed this entire mission just to prove that the long-desired quicker route to Asia legally resided in the hands of the Portuguese. For that reason, Magellan had his pilots purposefully lie in the ship's official logs about where St. Julian was located. It has been said that a rolling stone gathers no moss. 
Waiting for spring weather to arrive, the men were once again placed upon half rations. Outraged, many demanded that the expedition turn around and sail back for Spain while they still had the supplies available to make the journey home. A plot soon emerged to kill Magellan on Easter Day during the celebration of Mass. Ferdinand discovered the scheme after a longboat carrying orders for the coup ran astray and ended up on the captain's flagship by mistake. Aware of a portion of the plot already, Magellan disarmed the known conspirators by casually inviting them to a lavish feast in his own quarters. The men's desire for blood was soon doled by the wine that they drank, and they ended up revealing the entire plot to their target. Ferdinand immediately began preparations for the coming battle. First, 30 mutineers took over the San Antonio, Cartenja's former ship. Chaining the vessel's captain, they immediately raided the food stores, filling their hungry stomachs with anything that they could find. Bergerine tells us that within hours the mutiny spread like a contagion to two other ships. Only Santiago, under the command of Juan Serrano, a Castilian, remained neutral. Quesada, the lead mutineer for the moment, decided to leave Santiago alone. It was a decision that would later haunt the mutineers. When the sun rose on April 2nd, Magellan was presented with a letter that declared Quesada's command over the expedition. His demands were better food, less dangerous missions ashore, and a return to Spain. Ferdinand craftily hinted that he was open to accepting the demands, but needed to talk to the mutineer to hammer out the final details. Sensing a trap, which it surely was, Quesada demanded that Magellan meet him aboard the Santiago, to which the Captain General shockingly agreed. The situation was dire. The mutineers had three of his five ships, more than enough weapons to carry out an attack on his life, and the hearts of the long-suffering crew. First, Magellan sent five loyal crewmen armed to the teeth in a longboat to the Victoria. They were given the instructions to appear sympathetic to the rebels. They were to then deliver an ultimatum to the ship's captain, surrender immediately or be killed. The rebel responded to the threat with laughter, crumpling up the message and tossing it overboard. Ferdinand's man then immediately seized the captain by his beard and fatally stabbed him in the neck. Stunned by the death of their captain, the crew failed to notice a second rowboat filled with Ferdinand's men who subsequently stormed the ship. There was no resistance. The Victoria joined the Trinidad and the neutral Santiago to blockade the rebelling ships within the inlet. Still, Casada wouldn't surrender. Ferdinand next sent a man in the cover of darkness to sever the ship's anchor cable. A strong tide would then draw the Concepcion towards the blockade, giving the captain justification to launch a surprise attack. As the ship drifted in the night, the mutineers were awakened to the sound of cannon fire. The ship had drifted so close that Casada himself was nearly speared to death. Shocked by the sudden about turn, the men surrendered without much of a fight. Casada was arrested along with his inner circle. 
Mendoza, the captain of the remaining ship, then surrendered, only to be drawn and quartered, which meant that he would have been hung and then cut up while only partially strangled. The executioner would remove his intestines, burning them in front of the still-suffering man. Once deceased, his head and limbs would be severed and then doused with herbs to preserve them so they could be put on display for the remainder of the journey. Casada was next, but unable to find a volunteer willing to serve as the executioner, Magellan offered to free the mutineer's young squire if he were to perform the dreaded task. The man, Luis Molino, agreed in order to save himself and beheaded his lord in front of the watching crew. Casada's body was impaled and displayed on giblets that were later left in Port St. Julian. Incredibly enough, Sir Francis Drake claimed that they remained preserved 58 years later when his own voyage passed through the inlet. Ferdinand wasn't through yet, utilizing torture to flesh out the depths of the conspiracy against him. Bergreen writes that torture played an important part in Magellan's preventing future mutinies. Through his use of torture, his crew came to understand that the only thing worse than obeying Magellan's dictates and possibly losing their lives in the process, was suffering the consequences of defying him. One of the outstanding reasons that his crew had the courage and determination to circumnavigate the globe, even if it meant sailing over the edge of the world, was that he had compelled them to do so. Fear was his most important means of motivating his men. They became more afraid of Magellan than the hazards of the sea. Ferdinand's cousin led the investigation, identifying three more leaders before letting 40 others get off with a sentence of hard labor. For the three guilty men, however, Magellan subjected them to the strapado, one of the three torture methods utilized by the Spanish Inquisition. Unlike that institution, however, Ferdinand performed the torture in front of an audience. The victim was handcuffed with his arms behind his back, Next, those cuffs were attached to a pulley, which proceeds to lift the victim off the ground. Finally, weight is added to the man's feet in order to slowly rip the arms of the accused from the socket. From there, every single jerk of the line resulted in a new jolt of excruciating pain. Lacking weights on the ship, Magellan improvised by attaching cannonballs to their feet. Cartengia, his former Spanish co-captain, continued to plot while the investigation was going on. This marked his third attempted mutiny, unwilling to inflict torture upon him or the priest whom he was using to spread his plot from behind bars. Magellan left the two ashore in Port Julian, marooning them in what was surely a death sentence. That leaving occurred sooner rather than later, as the surviving members of the crew discovered that they had far fewer supplies remaining than they had expected. In fact, they had less than a third of what they had estimated would be needed to reach their final destination. They sailed out, risking their lives to storms, knowing that the alternative was starvation. Towards the end of May, a violent tempest pushed the Santiago ashore, breaking the ship to pieces. 
the crew were assumed lost for good, but for eight days the survivors persisted on harvested shellfish. Marching overland for 11 days, including a crossing of a river using carried planks from the ship, the crew met up again with Magellan's remaining ships. It was said that they were so ravaged that they were unrecognizable. Salvation came in the form of a giant of the Tutulche Indians. At least he is described as an eight-foot giant by Pigafetta. Philippa Taylor, a tour guide in Patagonia, informs us that the Tutulche is a collective name for the tribes that call Patagonia home. At least three different groups are known to have existed, each with differing dialects and traditions. Their presence in the region has been traced back as far as 4,500 years. The tribes were known to have been nomadic, but had managed to domesticate both dogs and horses. Strong warriors, the group had little fear of the European trespassers. In fact, it would only be through the collective introduction of sheep farming that the Teltuche would lose control over Patagonia. Magellan's men spotted the naked giant alone on shore as he was throwing sand on his head in some sort of ritualistic dance. Magellan's crew imitated his actions in order to initiate contact and were introduced to the rest of the tribe after the giant received the gift of a steel mirror. It was only through the tribe's intercession that Magellan's journey could continue on. From the locals, they learned how to capture the indigenous wildlife, known as the guanaco. These creatures, which remain in Patagonia today, resemble a smaller camel, but totally lacking in humps. The creatures have a herd mentality, living in groups of up to ten females, their children, and a single dominant adult male. Understanding this group mentality was the key to hunting the creatures. Burgreen explains the cruel process for us as it was explained to the Spanish explorers, writing that they tie up one of the young ones to a bush, and thereupon the large ones come to play with the little ones, and the giants hidden behind some ledge kill with their arrows the large ones. Despite the language barrier, Magellan managed to convert one giant to Christianity, and dubbed him John. Before departing, Magellan, fascinated with the size of the native's feet, identified this group of Teltuche as the Patacones, a Spanish word that describes dogs with giant paws. That term eventually became the region's modern-day name of Patagonia. The interactions weren't entirely peaceful, however, as all too often Europeans make it seem as though no good deed goes unpunished. Through subterfuge, Magellan ordered four giants to be shackled aboard his ships. His intention was to return them to Spain, much in the same manner that Columbus had brought back Taino Indians from his own expeditions. Hearing the wailing from two of the victims, however, Magellan relented, letting two of the captives return to their people. Unsurprisingly, the next day, a pitched battle claimed the life of Diego Barraza, a Spaniard who received a poisonous arrow to his thigh. Spring soon gave way to summer, which then turned into fall. Dreading another winter in the New World, Magellan risked traveling out into the open sea in order to push further south, as they hadn't yet reached the tip of South America. 
Bergreen tells us about the unique geographical features in this area, explaining that over time the plate from the east smashed into the plate from the west which slid underneath. As a result, the eastern sea, along the southernmost tip of South America, is about 1,500 feet deep. But the western sea reaches depths of over 15,000 feet. Heading into the unknown, the expedition was on the verge of failure. Needing a miracle, the crew witnessed an eclipse on October 11th, and 10 days later they found their strait. Now they needed to cross it. Magellan went first with two ships, the San Antonio and the Concepcion, to see if the passage went all the way through the Pacific. Bergreen describes for us the 300 miles of nautical nightmare that confronted the four remaining ships of the Armada. Tides in the strait run as much as 24 feet, making it difficult to anchor ships securely and currents are strong. Beds of kelp lurking below the water's surface threatened to foul lines, keels, and rudders. The first thing the pilots noticed was the extreme depth of the strait. In this place, it was not possible to anchor, Pigafetta observed, because no bottom was found. Magellan dubbed the region Tierra del Fuego, Land of Fire. Today, we know that land to actually be an enormous triangular island buffeted by winds from both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and constantly beset by storms and rapidly changing weather. The land of fire is actually the land of storms. Full of glaciers, Magellan's crew observed a solid wall of ice rising majestically before them, 200 feet, 500 feet, and more. They were ancient, some of them 10,000 years old. The Strait of Magellan, as it is now known, wouldn't again be crossed until Sir Francis Drake made the journey in 1578. One of his officers wrote that the land on both sides is very huge and mountainous, the lower mountains whereof, although they be monstrous and wonderful to look upon for their height, yet there are others which in height exceed them in a strange manner, reaching themselves above their fellows so high that between them did appear three regions of clouds. This strait is extremely cold, with frost and snow continually. The trees seem to stoop with the burden of the weather, and yet are green continually, and many good and sweet herbs do very plentifully grow and increase under them. Pigafetta identifies a great storm that appeared seemingly out of nowhere during their crossing. Locally known as the Willy Wall, the storm occurs when air, chilled by the glaciers surrounding the strait, becomes unstable, and suddenly races down the mountains with ever-increasing velocity, creating a squall so powerful that is guaranteed to terrify and disorient any sailor unlucky enough to be caught in its grip. Rather than a simple straight line straight, Magellan had discovered an uncharted maze of tidal estuaries snaking through the southern tip of the Andes Mountains. It took every trick in the book to navigate. Ferdinand even took to tasting seawater to guide them through the labyrinth. If the water became fresher, they were traveling inland. As it turned salty, he knew he was headed to the Pacific. At such low latitudes, night only lasted for three hours. 
Splitting up, the ships continued to explore while reconvening at predetermined times. In early November, the San Antonio failed to meet up at the designated rendezvous. Magellan didn't know it yet, but it had been commandeered by Estavo Gomes, the only pilot who had argued before entering the maze that it was past time to turn back, noting that there were only three months of remaining food, far too little to reach the Spice Islands. Bergering tells us that the dispute between Gomes and Magellan pitted two competing visions of the expedition against each other. Magellan saw it as a divinely sanctioned quest for new worlds, undertaken in the name of the king of Spain, to whom he was, if anything, even more devoted than he had been to the king of his native Portugal. If Magellan succeeded, it would be because God meant him to. This was discovery as revelation as prophecy as high-risk collaboration between God and his favorite nation, Spain. To Gomes, the rebellious rationalist, Magellan's exhortations sounded like the words of a fanatic who would lead them all to certain death in the name of king and country. The retreating San Antonio managed to make it home to Spain in May of 1521. They hadn't killed Mesquita, the captain of the ship during the takeover, and thus had to justify their mutiny in order to survive the wrath of the Spanish king. Therefore, Magellan's exceptionally harsh actions over the course of the voyage were the first information that the Spanish crown received from a journey that had begun nearly two years earlier. Their narrative held the day, and Gomes was freed along with the crew after a six-month investigation. Magellan's fleet was now down to three ships. Worse, the San Antonio had carried the majority of the fleet's food supplies. Exiting the strait and arriving at the Pacific Ocean at long last, they discussed their situation and its terrifying lack of supplies. The consensus agreed to give it till January at least. To travelers today, the accomplishment likely doesn't seem to be that great. After all, the Strait of Magellan is located incredibly close to the southern tip of South Africa. Bergreen puts the 38-day journey through the waterway in perspective for us, noting that Magellan's skill in negotiating the entire length of the strait is acknowledged as the single greatest feat in the history of maritime exploration. It was perhaps an even greater accomplishment than Columbus's discovery of the New World, because the Genoan, thinking he had arrived in China, remained befuddled to the end of his days about where he was and what he had accomplished, and as a result, he misled others. Magellan, in contrast, realized exactly what he had done. He had at long last begun to correct Columbus's great navigational error. In order to become the greatest explorer of his age, Magellan merely had to reach the Spice Islands and return via the same route. All he would have to do is cross what he and his men believed to be a tiny body of water known as the Pacific Ocean. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.